Then they surrounded the city. The Babylonians were braced for a long, drawn-out siege. In fact, the historians tell us they had stores, food stores, that would last them up to 20 years. And the Euphrates flowed under the walls as a constant, ceaseless supply of water. But the Persian king Cyrus and his general, Ugabaru, had a plan. I love that name. Ugabaru. Say it with me. Ugabaru. Don't you like that? Somebody needs to name one of their kids Ugabaru. I'd love to do a baby dedication with little Ugabaru. I just like that. Anyway, the Persian King Cyrus and General Ugabaru had a plan. You see, the northern farmland was irrigated by an elaborate system of canals. And so the Medo-Persian troops, they went upstream and they diverted the Euphrates into these canals. This dried up the riverbed under the city. And it enabled the invaders to enter the city, not scaling over the walls, but by coming in, marching in under the walls. The surprise tactic caught the Babylonians off guard and the city was taken by the Medes and the Persians without firing a single shot. Now, as always, it's the backstory that's even more fascinating. Daniel chapter 5 tells us what was going on in the Babylonian palace while the Euphrates was being dammed up, while Ugabaru was marching in under the walls. The king at the time, Belshazzar, was hosting a drunken orgy. During the party, he decided to mock the gods of Babylon's conquered foes. And he made the mistake of including Judah's God, the one true God. From the Babylonian war chest, he brought out the sacred vessels that God had ordained for use in Solomon's temple. His revelers used these holy vessels as beer mugs and as as shot glasses. How dare them? It was a deliberate attempt to humiliate and desecrate the God of Israel. But at that very moment, some mysterious handwriting appeared on the wall. It was written by no less than the finger of God in supernatural script. Daniel, the old Hebrew prophet, was called in to interpret the writing. And here was God's message to King Belshazzar. Many, many, tackle you farson. That may not mean a lot to you, but let me give you the translation. He said, your number is up. You've been weighed in the balance and found lacking. And your kingdom is about to be divided. And at that very moment, Ugabaru marched his troops into the city. It's interesting, the Hebrew prophets, they saw all of this in advance. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 51 predicted the fall of Babylon 50 years beforehand. And Isaiah wrote of the fall of Babylon 160 years before it even happened. In fact, Isaiah 45 verse 1 even mentions Cyrus by name a hundred years before he was born. Well, here in Isaiah 13 and 14, God predicts judgment on the nation Babylon and, and you're going to find this very interesting, the evil that inspired and empowered Babylon. Verse 1. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, here the word burden means heavy, This was a heavy warning, a serious message. You could call this a heavy revy. 
It's a dire warning from God against Babylon. He says, lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, I gave you the details on the fall of Babylon for a reason. Actually, the most striking feature in Isaiah 13 won't be the similarities to that battle, but the dissimilarities. For example... Isaiah sees Babylon surrounded by many nations. In 539 B.C., when Babylon fell, there were only two conquering nations, the Medes and the Persians. Verse 5 says that the invading nations, they come from a far country, as far away as the end of heaven. The Medo-Persians were next-door neighbors. Verse 5 also mentions weapons of indignation. Remember, ancient Babylon was conquered by subterfuge without firing a shot. Why these discrepancies? Was Isaiah's prophecy wrong? No, not hardly. You see, Isaiah definitely foresaw the fall of Babylon. But recall last time what we discussed about Bible prophecy. You see, it's often twofold. There is an immediate short-term fulfillment, but there's also a long-range future fulfillment. And many Bible scholars see in Isaiah 13 and 14 a prediction that's still future. Isaiah is prophesying the fall of not only ancient Babylon, but a future rebuilt city of Babylon. And one of the reasons we think much of this is still future is found in verse 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And here is a strategic biblical mile marker. It's a signpost. This phrase, the day of the Lord. Throughout the Bible, this expression looks to the end of the age when God will have his say in the affairs of man. You see, today is the day of man. Humans are having their say. Man is getting his way. And quite frankly, I'm tired of all his jabber. Man keeps hailing himself, an expert on this and an expert on that. He keeps spouting off his wisdom while the world and our quality of life continue to deteriorate. What a mess he's made. I long for the day when God gets his say and God has his way. The day of the Lord, it is coming. The day of the Lord when God will voice his opinion. The day of the Lord, it's a period of time. It begins when Jesus raptures the church. It continues as he brings judgment on this wicked world. It culminates when Jesus himself returns and establishes his kingdom. The day of the Lord. Evil Babylon will finally and utterly fall in that day. And Jesus will establish his throne in Jerusalem. The kingdom of heaven will have finally come to earth. This is the day that Isaiah sees, and it includes the destruction of Babylon. Verse 7, therefore, all hands will be limp. 
I know about a limp hand. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Here's the same language that Paul uses when he describes the judgments that are to occur in the great tribulation. Compare this verse with 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Perhaps Paul had been reading Isaiah. A false peace gets abruptly interrupted by terrible judgments that grip the globe like labor pains. This is all going to happen in the last days. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Understand, the Bible mentions two types of tribulation. This is important throughout your study of Scripture. There are two types of tribulation. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. You see, the world is always going to try to trouble the followers of Jesus. We talked about that this morning. But that's not the trouble that Isaiah foresees. He's talking about the tribulation that God is going to vent upon the world. Not what the world vents on the church, but what God vents on the world. You see, God is angry with our wicked ways. And the day is coming, the day of the Lord, when God is going to judge fiercely. Isaiah says, even cruelly. The cruelty of the nations will be met and beaten back by the severity of God's wrath. The day is coming. And he says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Verse 10 obviously goes beyond the scope of the historical battle. Here he mentions cosmic cataclysms that are a part of God's judgment. In fact, compare Isaiah's description with Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24. And you'll see that Jesus and Isaiah were both on the same page. At the end of the age, astronomical phenomena will summon the coming coming of our Lord Jesus. Cataclysmic things will happen. Read Revelation chapter 6. In verse 11, God declares, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Note this, God halts the arrogance of the proud. He's only going to let prideful man go so far in his proclamations, in his boastful proclamations. God halts the prideful person. He only lets him go so far. He says, I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. When the final judgments are poured out on the planet, gold will be more plentiful than human beings. That implies a massive destruction and widespread death that will ravage life as we know it today on planet earth. These things will happen in the last days. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. In early June, it finally happened for me. Out of all my trips to Southern California, 
I finally got to experience my very first earthquake. Ever been in an earthquake? Yeah, a few of you have. I was in the upper deck at Anaheim Stadium with Mac watching the angels play. My seat started to shake. I'm looking down, that foul pole is starting to shake. I look around, everything is starting to shake. Well, it turns out the epicenter of the 5.7 quake was south of San Diego near the Mexican border. I felt it as far as Anaheim, 100 miles away. It was a moving experience for me. But there were two ladies down at the end of the row. They thought nothing of it. For them, it was business as usual. And yet the day is coming when God will shake not only California... He's going to shake the whole earth off its foundation. He says, I will shake the heavens in the day of my fierce anger. Do you get the idea that God God is mad at some people? You get the idea that God has some issues? That he's going to settle? That he's going to deal with? That he's not going to look the other way at sin and with our wicked ways for law? He says there's some shaking that's going to come down. He's even going to shake the heavens above. He says he's going to shake the earth. In the words of Jerry Lee Lewis, there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. Verse 14. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Now pay attention To this verse, verse 14, this is interesting language. There is a subtlety here that you want to pick up on. It probably escaped the Jew of old, but it shouldn't escape those who have the benefit of a New Testament like you and me. Notice here, people left behind on planet earth during the great tribulation, they are described as sheep that no man takes up. Got that? See that? Evidently, there are some sheep that are taken up. When? How? We know that happens at the rapture. Jesus is going to come back and snatch up his church. The New Testament teaches that before God's judgment comes down, God's church goes up. It's called the rapture. Jesus descends in the clouds and he snatches us up, but there are going to be some sheep that are going to be left behind. Some sheep of Israel, that is. You know, critics of the rapture say that the doctrine never appears in the Old Testament. Well, who says? We find it right here in verse 14. Jot it down, mark it in your Bible. Uh, You'll want to show someone later. Verse 15, everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Babylon is going to fall. This terrible nation and all its evils are going to be judged. You know, here Isaiah mentions the meads again. Apparently the Medes were after more than gold. They wanted revenge. This may refer to the aftermath of Babylon's fall in 539 BC. Or it might refer to the modern day Medes. And who might they be? 
Anybody know who the modern day Medes happen to be? How about the Kurds? The Kurds are the modern day Medes. This is the ethnic group that served as the whipping boy for Saddam Hussein back in the 1980s. You remember Hussein experimented with weapons of mass destruction on the Kurds. He gassed innocent men, women, and children. Kurdish vengeance, the revenge of the Kurds, <laughs> may still be taken out on this future Babylon. Verse 18, also their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. You know, our translation uses the word bows, but the Hebrew word kesheth, it means launcher. Could be describing modern missile launchers. Verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This is interesting. Genesis 19, verse 24, tells us how Sodom was destroyed. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah out of the heavens. Fire came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And here the overthrow of Babylon is compared to the overthrow of Sodom. Ancient Babylon was spared any kind of massive destruction. We know that from history. In fact, the city was turned over to the Medes and the Persians intact without firing a shot. But it's possible a future Babylon will be destroyed by fire raining down from the heavens. If you look in your Bibles, turn to Revelation 17 and 18, you'll find that there is a Babylon still future. Either ancient Babylon will be rebuilt or the Babylonian system of religion will become so identified with one city that it will take its name. John sees this future Babylon. She's the world's center for business and religion. And yet he says in chapter 18, verse 19 of Revelation, in one hour she is made desolate. He reports that the nations mourn when they see the smoke of her burning. It seems certain to me that Isaiah has this future Babylon in view when he compares its overthrow to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whether this is a natural disaster that comes upon them or whether this is a nuclear bomb that detonates over Babylon. One day God is going to rain fire and brimstone down on Babylon as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20 adds, It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. And you wonder why it will never be inhabited. Perhaps from the radiation and the fallout that might be the residue of such destruction. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will caper there. This once mighty city will be abandoned and lie in ruins. It will be uninhabited by anyone other than wild desert animals. He says the hyenas will howl in its citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. Now these last verses of chapter 13 depict a Babylon that's been forever forsaken. A fact that was not true of ancient Babel. You see, after being conquered by the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C., the city remained vital for centuries. 
In fact, it was turned over to the Medes and Persians and became the capital for King Cyrus. Actually, 200 years later, Alexander the Great, he made the city of Babylon his capital. I believe Isaiah's prophecy here necessitates a future fulfillment. And this is why Saddam Hussein's attempts at reconstructing Babylon drew so much attention from Bible scholars. In the desert, 62 miles south of Baghdad, Saddam Hussein spent upwards of $25 million trying to rebuild ancient Babylon. In fact, he styled himself as the next Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted Babylon to be his capital. Many of our American troops returning from Iraq have now walked the halls of Sodom's 500-room palace. He also reconstructed Babylon's famed Marduk Gate and several other ceremonial buildings. He had planned to reproduce the Hanging Gardens and even the infamous Tower of Babel. Obviously, Saddam's plans were cut short. But who knows if a future Middle East leader won't revive his vision for a new revived Babylon. You know, with all the oil money flowing into the region, there's certainly the means for another Dubai-type construction project where a modern city rises from the desert floor. Babylon may well rise from the ashes again. It's interesting, when Isaiah first uttered this prophecy, Babylon was just a local city on the Euphrates River. It took a hundred years and the overthrow of Assyria for Babylon to become a world power. The thought of Babylon as a superpower sounded as strange to Isaiah's contemporaries as the idea of a present day Babylon becoming a strategic city on the global scene sounds strange to us. In the decades to come, let me encourage you to keep your eyes on Babylon. I believe there's a very good chance that it'll reemerge as an economic and as a religious sinner. Well, chapter 14, the plot thickens. <laughs> it begins, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Hey, the judgment that comes upon Babylon is going to occur as Israel resettles in her own homeland. Here's a prophecy that points to our day. Certainly points to Isaiah's future. But here's a prophecy that says all this concerning Babylon is going to occur when Israel and when Judah re-inhabit their land. That's something we've seen in this last generation, this last century. With modern, the birth of modern day Israel and with the Jewish influx back to the land. He says when the Jews, uh, he says then the people will take them and bring them to their place. In other words, when Jews return home, strangers are going to join them. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over them, over their oppressors. You catch what's going on here. He's saying God is going to turn the tables on the Babylonians. For 70 years, the Jews were captives in Babylon. You remember who joined them there? Daniel, Ezekiel. Uh, men that, prophets that we're familiar with, they act, were actually taken prisoner back to Babylon. The Jews were taken to Babylon for 70 years. But God is going to turn the tables. For when he overthrows Babylon and the Jews return, they're going to bring Babylonians with them as servants. 
It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. Boy, the Babylonian king is going to taste some of his own medicine. The persecutor will get persecuted. Now, chapter 13 was God's judgment on Babel, the city. Chapter 14 is now going to finger the king of Babylon. See, historically, at the time of Babel's fall to the Medes and the Persians, its king was Belshazzar. But the spiritual king of Babel is someone far more sinister, and he is going to appear in the next several verses. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you in the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Now, remember Isaiah was, was written a long, long time ago. It was written a hundred years before the Jews were even taken into captivity to Babylon. Middle 6th century, late 6th century B.C. God used King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to judge his people. But during that captivity, these words of Isaiah provided hope to God's people. You see, the Jews read this. And it said to them that one day God was going to turn the table on their captives. Captors. That their captors would become their servants. That those who had persecuted them would be persecuted themselves. This gave the Israelites, Ezekiel, Daniel, the people living in Babylon at the time. It gave them hope. And where there's hope, even the worst of circumstances can be endured. Never underestimate the power of hope. It's been said when hope is alive, the night is less dark, the solitude is less deep, and the fear is less acute. In 1965, Navy pilot James Stockdale was shot down over the jungles of Vietnam. He was held prisoner by the Viet Cong for seven years. Stockdale was frequently beaten and tortured and isolated from the other other prisoners. At times, he would spend weeks with his hands chained above his head. He couldn't even swat a mosquito. He ended up permanently injured from his ordeal. When he was finally rescued and released, he was asked how he had endured those seven years of horrible brutality. And he answered with these words, Hope kept me alive. The hope of one day going home, that each day could be the day of my release. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope in the rapture, hope in heaven. Hope can keep us going through difficult circumstances as well. I've heard it said a man can live 40 days without food, three days without water, eight minutes without air, but he cannot live one second without hope. This is what Bible prophecy is really all about. It was written to folks in the midst of the battle. History is a battle. It's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between God and Satan. 
And yet biblical prophecy fast forwards ahead to the final battle. And it reveals to us which side is going to win. And it gives us hope that if we stand with Jesus, come what may, we'll be on the victor's side. We'll end up triumphant. Verse 9 speaks to this king of Babylon. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. That's not a nice invitation. Hell's excited to meet you. The inhabitants of hell are looking forward to your arrival. Belshazzar was the king who mocked God by bringing out the sacred vessels and filling them with his wine and whiskey. He used the holy bowls, the sacred saucers to toast the idols of Babylon. It was blasphemous. Now Isaiah sends him an invitation to hell. Hell is excited to meet you, Belshazzar. Verse 10 records his reception. They all speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Hell has humbled these former arrogant kings and it'll do so to this Belshazzar. He'll be like all the others that are now suffering in the flames of hell. He says, your pomp is brought you down to Sheol. And of course, this was the Old Testament name for hell, Sheol. And the sound of your stringed instruments... The maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. Now, now this is interesting. This gives us a picture, a depiction of hell. Notice what Isaiah tells us about this real, viable, terrible place called hell. First, implied here is that people are conscious in hell. They're aware of their condition. They are sensitive to their surroundings. They speak and they see. They have thoughts and they have feelings. People are conscious in hell. Second, notice hell's inhabitants recognize each other. You know, they're going to see their buddies down in hell. They're going to recognize their their homeboys and their party pals down in hell. Here are the former kings. They know the king of Babylon when they see him. They all rise up. They go to greet him. Actually, they go to vent their frustrations and anger out on him. They also know each other. Third, they mock each other in hell. They're conscious in hell. They recognize other people in hell. And they mock each other in hell. Did you know that hell is a sarcastic place? That's why I hate it when my kids start getting sarcastic and start picking on each other. That's, like, that's what it's going to be like in hell. Hell is full of sarcasm. It's resident sneer at the king of Babylon. Have you become as weak as we? It's full of sarcasm. Fourth, inhabitants of hell are subject to great pain. Notice they're lying in maggots and they're covered with worms. I don't know how much you know about maggots. But a maggot is a slug-like, worm-like parasite. It has a hook. It actually has a mouth hook that literally tears into its food and rips it apart. 
Whenever my wife gets really repulsed by something, she has an expression she uses. She says, gag a maggot. She just kind of curls up her nose and says, ooh, gag a maggot. Why, why does she say it? Because maggots are really hard to gag. They eat anything. They tear into anything. They consume whatever they come, come in contact with. In Mark chapter 9, when Jesus warns us of hell, remember he mentions three times, their worm does not die. It makes you wonder, does a worm get assigned to everybody in hell? You get your own worm when you get to hell? Their worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. If you like lying on a gas grill with worms crawling all over your body, you're going to love hell. It's going to be your kind of place. Maybe you heard about what happened on the U.S. Airways flight that left Atlanta June the 30th. True story. Someone brought on board a container of rotten meat, and it was filled with maggots. And as the plane taxied down the runway, maggots started falling out of the overhead compartment. It created quite a disturbance. In fact, one passenger was quoted as saying, it only takes one maggot to upset your world. I suppose so. The plane turned around and it came back to the gate. But understand, when you take your seat in hell, you're going to be sitting in a bed of maggots. Plump red wigglers are going to be crawling all over your body. Hell's got to smell like a bait shop. If you don't like maggots and worms, here's another reason to give your life to Jesus. If you needed another. Unlike U.S. air, hell doesn't stop for a few maggots, apparently. And a maggot shower is just one of the many tortures of hell. Luke 16 reveals that hell is forever on fire. Like the burning bush Moses saw on Mount Sinai, hell burns, but it doesn't consume. Its torment is eternal. Your throat is always parched. Your thirst is never satisfied. You remember the rich man in hell. He wanted someone to come and just put a drop of water on the tip of his tongue. In Dante's Inferno, he writes over the gate of hell, all hope abandoned, you who enter here. This is the greatest torture of hell. In hell, there is no hope. Hope is forfeited forever. It's been said, even hell is truth known too late. The reality of a literal, eternal, infernal hell should shake us all out of our apathy. If we don't know Jesus, we need to come to know him tonight. If we know someone who doesn't know Jesus, we need to get the gospel to him tomorrow or tonight before we go to bed. Several years ago, I read a Gallup poll that revealed 60% of Americans believe in hell. But here's the kicker. Only 4% of Americans said they thought they were going there. What is the basis for your hope tonight? Some folks trust in the fact that they're a good person. Oh, I try hard. I mean well. They're hoping God grades on the curve. Oh, I'm not so bad. I'll get in. A.W. Tozer wrote, The vague and tenuous hope 
that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. Other people hedge their bets and buy into some religious dogma. Hey, I want to make this as clear as I can. If you are trusting in anything or anyone other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. If you're trusting in your own works, friend, it's not good enough. The standard is not you or me. The standard is God's righteousness, and no one meets up to that. There's only one provision for sin. There's only one way that we can make it. There's only one thing that can atone for our sin, and it's nothing we can do. In fact, if we could save ourselves, Jesus would have never had to die in our place. There's only one provision for sin and promise of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why I say, if you're trust, I'll say it again, if you're trusting in anything or anyone other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God has made one and only one provision for sin, the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what? He offers it to you freely tonight. If you'll ask him, Jesus will come into your life and wash you clean and make you whole. And you can know for sure you have a home in heaven and you'll never go to hell. Verse 12 continues addressing the king of Babylon. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now remember what we said about biblical prophecy. It's fond of twin fulfillments. Prophecy comes in pairs. Up until this point, Isaiah 14 has spoken to Belshazzar, king of Babylon. But Belshazzar was only a puppet on a string. A far more sinister force was behind the marionette. A spiritual king propped up this earthly ruler. You remember in Daniel chapter 10, an angel was dispatched to Daniel with a message. And when he arrived, he said to Daniel that he was sorry he was late, but he had been detained by the prince of Persia, a reference to a demon. It's interesting, on occasion, demons empower and inspire the kings of this world, the prince of Persia. And this was true of Babylon. Now, now follow me. If Babel is the seat of Satan on the earth, then who do you think was behind the king of Babylon? How about Satan himself? Isaiah sees past the present earthly king to the power behind him. He calls him Lucifer. This also happens in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel describes the king of Tyre when suddenly he shifts his conversation to Satan, the power behind Tyre. And notice how Isaiah refers to Satan. Again, he calls him, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You've got to remember, Satan did not begin as the epitome of evil. Ezekiel 28 verse 14 says that he was once the anointed cherub 
who covers. Lucifer was an angel. God created Lucifer to worship him. He was an angel of God. In fact, do you remember when God gave Moses the blueprints for how to build the ark? And the ark was a prototype of God's throne in heaven. And in the blueprints, God put two golden angels on top of the mercy seat. Their wingspan covered the throne of God or the top of the ark. The Bible mentions two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. But perhaps in the beginning, there were three. Ezekiel refers to Satan as the anointed cherub who covers. Perhaps there were three angels that covered the throne of God. And Lucifer may have been one of that angelic trio. One of the archangels with Michael and with Gabriel. We know that Lucifer played a vital role in worship. Ezekiel 28 verse 13 depicts him as a musical creature. That he was created with timbrels. He was created to be melodious and to be musical. Perhaps God created him as heaven's worship leader. Ezekiel calls him the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In fact, the name Lucifer, it means light bearer. He calls him the son of the morning. That was the star that shone so brightly that it could be seen even after the, star, the sun had come up. You could still see the star, the son of the morning. You know, we're wrong to think of Satan as some cartoonish creature in a red suit with pointed ears, horns, and a pitchfork. Satan is far more glamorous and sophisticated than that. This is why he comes to us in pleasing shapes and in attractive forms. Satan is the gorgeous blonde in the string bikini. Satan is the hip professor with his cool-sounding arguments. Satan is the self-righteous preacher spouting seductive lies. Beware. Paul refers to Satan as the angel of light. He was Lucifer, the light bearer. And this allows him to be such a master deceiver. The angel Lucifer, according to Isaiah, occupied great heights. And yet never has anyone fallen so far so fast. Isaiah says he was cut down to the ground. Recall what was written of the king of Babylon back in verse 9. Hell is going to be happy to see you. You know, some people assume that the devil rules over hell. Not so. Satan wants nothing to do with hell. Satan's headquarters was Babylon, not hell. Revelation 20 says that at the end of the great tribulation, Satan will be bound in hell for a thousand years. When that day comes, according to Isaiah, hell's inmates are going to look at the list of new arrivals for that day. They're going to see Satan on the schedule and they're going to get excited. They're going to finally get their chance to meet him and to vent their anger and to take out their their frustrations on him for having deceived them. And again, what does hell say to the devil in verse 9 to the king of Babylon? He says, have you become as weak as we? You've got to know Satan isn't going to reign in hell. He's going to get kicked around in hell. Because a lot of people are going to have a grief, a beef with him in hell. He helped get them there. 
He's going to be hell's punching bag. His pride is going to be brought low. His music is going to be shut off. The old serpent will be destined to crawl for eternity with the maggots and with the worms. And here's the sin that caused his colossal fall. Verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Notice five times in these two verses, Lucifer says, I will. What was his sin? Pride entered his heart. Remember the middle letter of the word sin? It's I. Lucifer and Frank Sinatra had a lot in common. They decided to do it my way. Somewhere along the way, it became all about Lucifer. And Marvin, I want you to pay attention to this. Any other worship leaders out here, I want you to pay attention to this. James, I want you to pay attention to this. Sandy, you need to pay attention to this. Notice what happens here. He goes from worship leader to entertainer to star to worship hoarder to devil. And all worship leaders and all pastors need to pay attention to that progression. How easy it is for it to become all about me. I will. Pride caused Lucifer to get tired of worshiping God. He wanted the worship for himself. He tried to steal God's glory. He said, I will be like the most high. Hey, Lucifer was already pretty high on heaven's chain of command. He was the anointed cherub who covered. He was one of the archangels. But that wasn't enough for him. It never is. He wanted to be most high. It didn't dawn on him, there's only room for one most high. Satan wanted to be exalted like God. Yet God informs him here in verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. In Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus said that he was there when Satan crashed, crashed and burned. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan no longer makes his home in heaven. He was fired from serving God. Today, Satan roams planet earth. The New Testament calls him the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. But at Calvary's cross, Satan was finally and ultimately defeated. His defeat was sealed. When Jesus returns, he'll lock up the devil in hell. You remember Matthew 25 verse 41 tells us that hell wasn't made for man. God created hell for the devil and his angels. And when Jesus returns, he'll assign Satan to the place that he's tried to avoid all of these years. Notice one other subtle yet important point about about hell. Notice Isaiah says that Satan is not only brought down to Sheol, but to its Lowest depths, and I quote. 
implied there is that there are depths in hell. Or there are levels or degrees of punishment in hell. Some folks apparently will be sentenced to hotter spots than other folks. It was brought down to the lowest depths of hell. Verse 16 and 17 make an interesting observation about Satan's arrival in hell. Those who see him see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Hey, I got to tell you, when Satan is finally forced out of the shadowy recesses in which he does his work out into the light of day, we're all going to be astonished. People are going to look at him and say, is this the guy we let bully us around? What were we thinking? We'll be amazed that we allowed such a puny punk to wreak such havoc. Satan was a defeated foe all along. But because of our fear, or because of our doubt, or because of our lack of faith, we allowed him to work such mischief. We're going to be shocked. Oh, 1 John 4 verse 4 tells us, and I hope you believe it. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 17 finishes the thought, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. Here's a good description of the work of Satan. He keeps people in prison. This is, his whole, this is what he does. And I got to say, he does a good job of it. He will even let you change your addictions. You know, you see people, they go from alcohol to cigarettes. They go from video games to online poker. You know, they, they just change their addictions. Satan doesn't care what does the job just as long as he can keep you locked up and distracted from God. Only Jesus can overthrow Satan in your life and truly set you free. And he'll do so if you ask him tonight. He says, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. Jesus is the righteous branch. Notice Satan here is the abominable branch. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. In other words, God's going to put an end to the Babylonian dynasty. He's going to cut off their kings. I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. After God's judgment, Babylon will become barren and polluted. Now chapter 14 ends with the judgment of Assyria and the Philistines. Remember Assyria invaded Judah in Isaiah's day. We're going back now before Babylon. They were the immediate threat in Isaiah's day. And in verse 24 God predicts Judah's deliverance from the Assyrians. The Lord of hosts has sworn saying, Surely as I have thought so it shall come to pass... 
And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and my mountains tread him underfoot. And that is exactly what God did. We talked about this in Isaiah 7 through 9. How Emmanuel, that pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the messenger of the Lord, came in a single night and all by himself slew 185,000 Assyrian troops who were camped against Jerusalem. It was a miracle indeed. Emmanuel came to their rescue. Verse 25, Then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Notice back in verse 24, God promises to break the Assyrian's hold. And here again is another dual prophecy. The Assyrian is the name for both the ruler of ancient Assyria, the world's first world ruler, and it's also in Isaiah a name for the Antichrist, the final world ruler. Both will be broken by the hand of the Lord. It says, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Now, what a powerful verse. He's saying, who can fight against God's purpose and win? No one. Who can resist God? As the old saying goes, your arms are too short to box with God. What God purposes will prevail. And here's the good side. That includes his promises towards you. I love 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24. It says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Chapter 14 closes with God's warning to the Philistines. Since they were west of Judah and the Assyrians invaded from the east... Emmanuel's destruction of Assyria's troops saved the Philistines as well as the Jews. And yet God says to them, this is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken, for out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. In other words, don't you Philistines get the big head. Just because you escape judgment this time doesn't mean there's not more to come. Hey, repent of a viper and it'll get followed by a serpent. You know, if you don't repent, there'll be more to come. Assyria fell, but Babylon became God's new instrument of judgment. And through the Babylonians, the Philistines were judged In other words, though the teacher changed, the lesson remained the same, and that was to repent. The chapter closes beginning in verse 30. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, all you of Philistia are dissolved. For smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. What will they answer the messengers of the nations? That the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. And there we have God's judgment on the kingdom and king of Babylon.